All right, this um, hands down, no exaggeration at all. Uh, the actually the worst Bible translation I've ever seen. It is not just problematic in that it misrepresents what Scripture is teaching. It's anti-gospel in that it tries to invert the gospel. You know, the the author of this translation, who I'll talk about in just a minute, he wants to undo the gospel and replace it with a message that's contrary to the gospel. It's just as extreme as it could possibly be. This is the mirror Bible translation. Here's what it looks like right here, uh, presented by Francois Dutoy. And um, I'm not going to pull any punches today because this is just anathematizing stuff. Like this is the worst thing you can get when it comes to the contents of a book. Uh, and so I'm going to give you examples. We're going to go through the details. I'll show you how Francois has mistranslated. I'll show you how he changed Bible verses to fit his false teachings. So we're going to learn what his false teachings are. And I'm going to show you how he abuses Greek. Now, this is going to be fruitful for a lot of people, and it might be a little annoying to some because there are some particular habits people have when it comes to abusing Greek, something called the etymological fallacy that I'm going to talk about and unpack uh, in a little bit of detail, give you some examples. <clears throat> Unfortunately, this means that depending on who your teachers are, even who your pastor is, you may find that they're using this fallacy a lot. And uh, this will at least keep you from doing it too. So what villain is behind this? By the way, I'm Mike Winger, and this is my week, well, I do twice a week live streams. This is the Monday live stream. We're usually doing a verse-by-verse -verse teaching of some kind. Currently, I'm in the Gospel of Mark. But I decided to take a little detour and do the Mirror Bible Translation because uh, it seems like no one's really handling this thing. And the author of the translation is does have a following in South Africa in particular, and I'm just concerned that that there's, there isn't some, something out there, a good resource out there, like what I'm hopefully going to create today, that unpacks and deals with this issue. If you look at the Amazon reviews for the Mirror Bible Translation, they're glowing, these glowing reviews about how wonderful it is. And it's just, and here's the thing, it's wonderful, but it's terrible at the same time. You know, like you wouldn't eat really food that's really bad for you if it didn't taste good. And that's what the Mirror Bible is. Oh, it tastes so good to, to people. But man, is it bad. Now, you, you might be thinking, what villain is behind this book? Well, I'm going to show you right here, Francois Dutoy, and that's his wife. And he doesn't really look like a villain, does he? I mean, he looks like a nice guy. He looks like a joyful kind of guy. Like, isn't he supposed to be have the horns or something? He's supposed to be wearing red. I mean, I'm the one wearing red-ish color right now. Um, but I want you to know this, he's sincere. And before we get into any of this, when I show you all the utter twistings of scripture, I want you to understand a couple things for your own sake, because this will give you discernment in life. People who are sincere and who are loving and who are very kind can be the worst of deceivers because they themselves believe the lies that they're pitching to others. And when you believe the thing, it makes it easier to get others to believe it too. But look at how sincere he is. Here's a clip of Francois Dutoy speaking to his crowd. And, and by the way, if, if, you, if you're a follower of Francois and his Mirror Bible Translation, look, I believe in the love of God. I believe in the truth of the word of God. What I'm telling you is that Francois, and you've, you've, you've wondered, you've wondered when he says, this is what it really means in the Greek. This is what the Bible is really saying. And he tries to quote his own translation to prove his own theology. You've wondered, at least in the back of your head, if this is really legit. And this is what we're going to talk about today. It's not meant to be a personal attack, <clears throat> but I do want to give people discernment. So here's Francois Dutoy. Let's listen to how sincere he is. We, we are the product of his knowledge, of his beingness, and to know that we are in him who is true. 
the safest place to find yourself located in Him who is true. There is no hidden agenda there. He's the Father of lights. There is no shadow due to change. God is not in the process of trying to, you know, work through the latest news media and try and re-align His thoughts towards the human race. But His rest is inexhaustible. He has entered into a place of Sabbath encounter. In their being as we are embraced. So that we may know that as Jesus is in the Father, so we are in Him and He in us. There is no difference there. This is what He redeemed. Okay, I'm, I'm hoping that you can get the idea. Is I see a guy there who means what he says. He's tearing up because he's so excited and passionate about the things he's teaching. The thing is, the things he's teaching aren't true. And no matter how emotional they make him, no matter how much they tear him, they're not true. Which means it's a really effective way to propagate a lie. To be super emotional and super passionate about it. So, <clears throat> we're going to dig into details now. Um, just know this, that we assume that leaders of cults, leaders of weird false religions, we assume that they're... Um, unintelligent or insincere. And in my experience, it seems like the leaders of these false groups are generally highly intelligent and very sincere. Not always, but very often they are. They're very intelligent people. You know, if, if you think that, um, like that, that Joel Osteen is, and he's not a cult leader exactly, I'm not saying that, but if you think that Joel Osteen is like a dummy, then I think you're just not paying very much attention. The guy knows exactly what he's doing, and he's being very careful and thoughtful about it. If you think Francois Dutoy is is a dummy, then you're not paying attention. Um, if you think that any of the leaders, if, if you think that the leaders of whatever false group are just insincere and dumb, uh, then I think you're not really equipped for when you encounter the sincere and intelligent ones. And that's what we have here. Francois is a very, very intelligent man, although he's making very obvious blunders in Greek and very, very obvious mistakes with the text of Scripture. But he's very smart and he's very sincere. All right, let's talk about whether he's true or not. Okay, so you, you um, according to the Mirror Bible Translation, you, you do, oh, we're going to talk about John one twelve. You don't have to be born again is, is his teaching on this. But let me first give you a little backup because I did some investigative reporting on Francois Dutoy. And, uh, and I tried reaching out to him individually. I, I reached out to him and I never got a response. So I tried to confirm his educational background and things like that. And I, I wasn't hiding the fact that I was doing a review of his of his translation. So I think he either didn't notice my message or he decided to ignore me because he knew there was probably nothing good going to come out of telling me stuff. But um, at least good for him. Good for other people maybe. But <clears throat> but I did some investigative reporting on Francois Dutoy. So he started a church back and he was part of a church in the 80s, 1980s. And he started, his teaching started drifting, started becoming uh, un, unbiblical. He would leave aside repentance. He would leave aside the idea of sin. And people in his church, you know, went to him and said, hey, this is problematic. Um, and long story short, he closed the church. He like ended the church. The church died. He just closed the church. And then he went off and became new age mysticism type religion for years and years and years. Then after changing his religious beliefs, after adopting sort of a self-realization kind of religion, he then came back to Christianity and he started trying to change Christianity to fit his new religion. This is my short summary of what happened. The Mirror Bible translation is his attempt to do that with not just Christianity, but with the Bible. To change the Bible into his new age you know, self-realization kind of uh, very emotive religion. <clears throat> so 
the Bible conflicts with his beliefs now, right? The Bible says you have to be born again. The Bible says you're a sinner. The Bible says that, that you're lost in your sin, that you deserve good judgment, that God has wrath, and that Jesus is the way to be forgiven, to be put into right relationship with God, and to have a new life. Okay, but all of those truths conflict with Francois Dutoy. So he has adapted the Bible so that it would agree with him. So some of the passages we're going to go through right now. I'm going to read, with, read to you what you're going to have on the top uh, of your the white part of your screen um, is is going to be the ESV translation, and then what you'll have in the uh, the, the black because I read Kindle in dark mode. <laughs> so what you're going to have in the in the black there is going to be Francois Dutoy's translation. So let's look at John one twelve, and here it says in the ESV and in most Bible translations you're going to get something like this, right? But to all who did receive him, receive Jesus, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. And notice the word become, and this is very important, right? They're going to become children of God. They're not already children of God. We're not born as children of God in spite of some things that Pope Francis keeps saying. We're not born children of God. We're born children of wrath. We're born in the image of God, but we're not his children. We don't have that familial like bonding that comes through Christ as He's my brother, God's my father, as, as I become born again into the family of God through Christ. But no, Francois can't tolerate that, so he changes it. John one twelve says, Everyone who realizes their association in him, convinced that he is their original life and that his name defines them, his name defines them, God gives the assurance that they are indeed his offspring, begotten of him. He sanctions the legitimacy of their sonship. Notice this in John 1, 12, it's not something that has to happen to you so you can become a child of God. Instead, now you're already a child of God. And the big issue is that you come to a realization. He even put the words real, puts the word realizes there. You have to re, have the realization that you are already his child. Your original life, right? That that is your original life. You, you are originally, and, and I'm just going to give a spoiler alert. You're originally the same as Jesus, from your your first birth, your initial creation moment, you are as holy and righteous as Jesus. This is anti-gospel. So we see realization, original life, his name defines you. What, what This is just a weird way of saying that I'm going to deify mankind because when I say God, when I say Jesus in particular, I'm, I'm describing me. That's, that's actually how bad this theology is. Now, one verse down in John 1.13, we get a little bit more. In John 1, 13, here in the ESV, uh, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're speaking here of just being born of God. But his verse 13 is a lot longer, and many of his verses are much, much longer because he has to cram all this, these new ideas into the text. He says, these are the ones who discover their genesis in God, right? Because you aren't born again. You just started that way. You, your genesis, your beginning was in, was in God. Beyond their natural conception. This is not about our blood lineage or whether we were wanted, a wanted or unwanted child. This is about our God begottenness. Now, a lot of this terminology will be in his, <clears throat> in his um, translation where he's trying to tap into people who have like sort of emotional angst about their past. I'm just being honest here. I've listened to his teachings. This is what he does. He taps into your emotional angst about you being wanted or unwanted and then how God's going to be the one to satisfy your, your need for love. Now, the truth is that this is part of the Christian truth. I mean... I'm an example of, of, a, of a young kid full of angst who, when I found the love of God, it, he healed that um, in, in a huge, deep, and personal way. But 
but he's he's trying to make that like that's the whole gospel message and it's not about being born again it's not about coming into a relationship with god but it's kind of like about realization that you're already awesome <laughs> like you are so awesome guys you are so awesome jesus is awesome guess what jesus is you you're just you're as awesome as jesus <clears throat> anyway then he goes on and says we are his dream come true not the invention of our parents and then here's the it, it all added into John 1.13. Here's the phrase that Francois Dutoy uses all the time in his teaching on his website. And he's, he's brought it from his teaching and pushed it into the text of the Bible. He says, you are indeed the greatest idea that God has ever had. You're the greatest idea that God has ever had. It might sound like an empty platitude, but it's not. It's the, it's the idolization of mankind. It's the deification of self. And then you realize that when, when Francois Dutoy is choked up about how much, how good God is... What he's really choked up about, as far as I can tell, is the idolization of himself, how amazing he is. Oh, he's really choked up when he describes the Father and, and Jesus. He really thinks he's describing himself. So, of course, he's excited about all this stuff. It's like self-worship, and he's trying to get you to do the same. Um, yeah, it's satanic. I mean, it just is. I'm not pulling punches, guys. This is, this is, this is man worship. It's satanic. <clears throat> John 3, 3. Let's look at another text. We're going to get into Greek stuff like that as well today. Um, right, right now I'm focusing on the idea that you don't need to be born again. His teaching is that you're already, you're already perfect. You just have to realize it. So John 3.3 3 says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, I, I, I was curious. How does Francois handle this text? Because it just says you have to be born again or else you're not going to, you're not going to be saved. Okay, you won't see the kingdom of God. You won't enter the kingdom of God. You won't experience eternal life. John 3, 3 in the Mirror Bible translation says, Jesus answered him emphatically, no one would even be able to recognize anything as coming from God's domain unless they are born from above to begin with. The very fact that it's possible to perceive that I am in union with God as a human being reveals mankind's genesis from above. And I know, look, I, I know this is, you're like, what is he saying there? It's just weird. It's really couched in this sort of Gnostic, like, mystical spiritual language what he's doing is he's inverting jesus's statement jesus is like look right now you do not have eternal life you need to be born again through faith in christ and you'll be saved francois is going to completely invert this he wants to say right now you already have eternal life you don't need to be born again you have to recognize that you already have eternal life you you know you the fact that you can look at jesus and that you could even even say, hey, he's from God, it proves that you are too, right? Your genesis is from above. That's the theology that he's peddling. It's not just unbiblical. It's it's the reverse of scripture. It's anti-biblical, anti-gospel. John 3, 7, let's look at this verse too. Do not marvel, here it is in the ESV, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know uh, where it comes from. I guess I don't need to go any further than verse seven. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. My curiosity was, hey, you know, how's he going to get rid of this phrase born again, right? Because born again is anathema to him, um, just as his gospel is anathema to God. John 3, 7 says, do not be surprised when I say to you, you could get, you couldn't get here in the flesh unless you got here from above. The fact that you physically exist is proof that you are already born of the spirit. You're already born again. It's, it's the inversion of the truth of scripture, but it sounds nice and people like it because they're just ignorant. I don't know what else to say. There, there's just a dangerous level of ignorance on those who read this and go, oh, wow, that's beautiful. 
that's like if if satan quotes poetry do you think that whatever he's teaching is beautiful now it's just weird well notice this in the brackets in john 3 7 he attaches to the end of the word you he attaches manatee and then says plural and exclamation point there's lots of exclamation points all throughout his work the mirror bible translation has a million exclamation points in the in the text as well as the the footnotes and i have all the footnotes because i bought the mirror bible um, study version so i have all the footnotes in his extended teachings there i'm going to share stuff with you today he says don't be surprised when i say to you this is his version of 3 7 when i say to humanity plural now this is another of the one of the many new words that francois dutoy has made up or brought at least they're not normal english words and he's brought them into scripture humanity is one of the words because he, he just wants to say like this is about all people and so he just translates it humanity anyway just kind of a weird thing he does that i don't think anybody i don't think any respectable translator would do john 3 18 and we're going to look uh, as well at francois dutoy's educational background when we talk about the etymological fallacy i don't think he has even 10 percent of the greek that he says he has and i think it's very clear and anybody who, who knows a, a first year greek student would recognize that there's problems with what francois is doing um, so john 3 18 <clears throat> jesus says whoever believes in him does not con- is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already so i was like well, what's he going to do with this condemned already thing right why are you condemned already? Well, because you haven't believed in the Son, right? You're still in your sin. The fact that you haven't trusted in Christ means you have no covering for your sin. So you stand in a place of already being condemned. Well, his version of John 3.18 says, Faith and not flesh defines you. Now, is the word faith anywhere in John 3.18? No. Um, believe is in there. Okay. But this is a whoever believes. But no, no. He's taking faith as a noun, not as a verb, something you do. And so that word's not in there. Then he has not flesh defines you. Where's where's flesh? There's not there. It's he's just he's just making stuff up. He's just making stuff up. In the persuasion of your authentic sonship, I continue. There is no separation or rejection. Of course, he thinks authentic sonship means how you're naturally born, not being born again in Christ. That's authentic sonship. But no, he thinks it's it's it. You don't need Jesus to save you from anything except a, a bad mentality. He's just going to change your mind about things. It's realization brought in from like Buddhist or New Age type beliefs. Um, there's no separation or rejection. So so no one's condemned ultimately because there is no separation or rejection. For someone, I read on, for someone to prefer not to embrace this is to remain under their own judgment, sustained by their futile efforts to define themselves through personal performance. Now, notice this. Jesus says the person who doesn't believe is condemned already. He's speaking of divine condemnation upon those who reject Christ. Francois changes it. He says, no, no, God would never condemn me. So I have to be the one condemning myself, right? So those who reject it, they're under their own condemnation. That's Francois' changing of the text. He goes on to say, in their stubborn unbelief, they reject what is revealed and redeemed in the name of the Son, begotten only of the Father, not the flesh. Of course, to Francois, what's revealed and redeemed in the Son is that you are already just like Jesus. You're already just like Jesus. So there's another... Yet another text that just goes way, way beyond. Um, I mean, the number of words he adds alone should get you to take this book and do something mean to it. First John 3, verse 9. First John 3, 9. Let's go to First John. 
First John has some pretty tough passages in it, and many people look for ways around what I think it seems to clearly be saying. I was curious what Francois was going to do with it. First John 3, 9 says, I'll read 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Um, let me get you that on screen there. Okay, so First John 3, 9 is real simple. Um, it doesn't mean that you never sin. It does mean that you don't live the ungodly lifestyle as though you're, as though you're not even a Christian. And if you do, if you live the ungodly lifestyle, lacking love and lacking obedience to Christ entirely in your life, and you're just going on a regular practice of sinning in your life, then it it seems to be an indication that you're not even really genuinely saved. Okay, that that's a hard teaching because a lot of people then go, well, is that me? Is that me? Well, to get around this, because the last thing Francois wants is for you to ever doubt your own salvation, ever doubt, not even salvation, just ever doubt your own original holiness. And so he changes it. John, First John 3, 9. I'll put 3, 9 up on, in the white box for you in, in a, a real version. <laughs> and there are lots of real good Bible versions out there. ESV, NASB, uh, New King James, uh, great translation, maybe not the best sources. And then um, good sources, maybe just not the best. And then, um, you know, anyways, you could find lots of good translations out there. But First John 3, 9, he says, to discover one's authentic sonship in God is to discover true freedom from sin, right? You, you don't have to become born again, right? You're already his son. You guys get it. He's just on this sort of mantra. We are born of him and his seed remains in us. This is the only possible reference to sober up the mind from the intoxicating influence of deception. What's the great deception he wants to sober you up from? Um, here, it's about, are you a genuine Christian? Do you live out that life of following Jesus? But Francois, his deception he wants to fight is the idea that you need to be born again in the first place. To him, the deception is the gospel. The deception is the idea that you're a sinner and you need to repent. That's the deception. It's, it's anti-gospel. Here's verse 10 in his translation compared to above in the ESV. There is a very visible and vast difference between living one's life. I know it says live. Okay, he just doesn't have an editor that's careful. So there's a very visible and vast difference between living one's live from your God identity. There's a new term for you, God identity. You have a God identity? What does that mean? Does it mean that you're God? Or does it mean that God has an opinion about you and you have to be aware of it? Or is it both? Who knows? Or for, I, actually, it means you're God. Let me, I'll get back to that later. <laughs> Let me get back to that later. Um, or from a fallen mindset, the diabola, the Diabolos fruit has nothing in common with righteousness, neither does it know anything about brotherly love. This whole verse turns into a large amount of nonsense. But notice that he, he translates the Greek, diabolos, right? Because it, what, what it should say, it probably says in Greek, I didn't look it up, it's probably something like paideon, uh, you know, child, and then uh, to diabolu or something like that, child of the devil. And what maybe it's something like that anyway he he doesn't want to say that someone's a child of the devil because nobody is everyone's a child of god so he takes child of the devil and turns it into diabolos fruit so child is now fruit and he doesn't even translate the word diabolos right he's just putting the greek in english lettering um this is painfully irresponsible but the whole issue here is he just has to has to not let john three first john three ten say what it says because he has his theology his theology does not involve you needing a new life you're already originally of God. You have a God identity. 
at every stage from the beginning all the way down the road. And any place in scripture that says otherwise, he's going to change. So he has to redefine sin. Romans 3, verses 22 through 23, he has to actually redefine sin. Let me go to that passage. You know this text in scripture, right? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's probably the key section here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Romans 1, 2, and 3 is very, very adamant. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, we're all lost in sin. We have wrath coming our way and we need salvation. We need grace through Jesus Christ. I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. And when I trust in Jesus, God forgives me because of what he did on the cross. It's not any work I've done. And he gives me his Holy Spirit and now I'm born again and I'm a child of God and I can cry out, Abba, Father. I go from not saved to saved. Again, he fights against this. He cannot handle this. So verses like this have to be changed. So here's his translation, uh, and then we're going to talk about his butchering of the Greek. And I want to equip you, normal people who don't know Greek, to be able to avoid when somebody else is butchering the Greek. This will help you today, I hope. John three twenty, uh, Romans 3.22, his translation. Je- Jesus is what God believes about you. Look at your screen and look at verse 22 in Romans 3. How on earth... Like in what twilight zone is he living in that you could get from verse 22 that Jesus is what God believes about you? It's insane. The man is not translating the Bible. The man has beliefs he's developed from new age and whatever kind of demonic activities going on in his heart, right? Angels of light. Satan disguises his ministers as angels of light. He's using this He's got his beliefs and then he comes to the Bible and he's just writing whatever he wants and calling it a Bible translation. Occasionally going to the Greek, butchering it as someone who, someone handed him a strong Bible concordance and it's as though he's never learned anything about it. Um, So he says, Jesus is what God believes about you. Deification of man, um, denial of sin, all these things right there in that one phrase. He says this all the time. It's on his website too. In him, the righteousness of God is on display in such a way that everyone may be equally persuaded about what God believes about them, regardless of who they are. There's no distinction. The whole purpose of Jesus is just to persuade you that you're already like Jesus. So when I see Jesus holy and perfect and righteous, I see angels worshiping him. He walks around and he says, he says, before Abraham was, I am all those things. Guess what? That's you. That's you. This is the deification of self. This is self-worship. What his eyes are tearing up over is the love of self and the worshipfulness of self and the realization that blah, blah, blah. I mean, just fill in the blank. Craziness. Then he goes on in verse 23 where it says, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but Francois translates it. Mankind is in the same boat. Their distorted behavior is proof of a lost blueprint. Never mind that, you know, phrases like same boat and blueprint don't really belong in the text of scripture. Um, super idiomatic, but distorted behavior is is replacing sin. He doesn't he doesn't want to use the word sin. He doesn't want to say sin. And for this, he goes to the Greek. So here we go. This is how Francois handles the Greek. He says, and I'm gonna read it to you. The words, and I'm gonna read the whole thing. Then I'll explain it, okay? Because it's it's gonna it's gonna go right over your head, even if you know Greek. <laughs> and then I'll explain it. The word sin, he says, 
This is his commentary in his study Bible with in, in his translation. He says, the word sin is the word hamartia. Okay, that's true. From ha, negative or without, and meros, portion or form. So it's from those two words. Thus to be without your allotted portion or without form. Pointing to a disorientated, distorted, bankrupt identity, the word meros is the stem of morphe, as in 2 Corinthians 3.18, the word metamorphe, with form, which is the opposite of hamartia, without form. Sin is to live out of the context, out of context with the blueprint of one's design, to behave out of tune with God's original harmony. And then he goes on. So what on earth did he just do? Like I read this to people um, yesterday at my Sunday evening service and I realized like nobody understands like what is even happening here. Like, what is he saying? What does it mean? So I'm going to put it on screen. Check this out. I made a little graphic. All right. So he goes from hamartia. That's on the top left of your screen. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. He doesn't want to go to the definition of the word. Instead, he wants to go to the root meaning of the word. So he, he says hamartia comes from two words, ha and meros, right? So from there he goes, ha, meros then is the root of hamartia. And from meros, you launch upward, there's another word that's connected to meros, it's morphe. And morphe means change. And so really what we have is ha morphe, not hamartia. This is lingui linguistic stupidity. I don't know how else to describe it to you guys. Let me, let me show you another graphic that I think will help explain it um, in English, what he's done. Okay. So he says, hamartia, which just means sin. Okay, Greek is a language. Words have meanings, not just roots. He says, hamartia, and he wants to get away from the meaning of sin. So he goes to etymology. It means, is ha plus martia. Then he goes from etymology down to an unhelpful root. What do I mean? I mean that meros is not helpful for knowing the meaning of hamartia. The way you know language meanings is you, you, you look at the word hamartia used in context. Just like you don't know what butterfly means by looking at butterfly in an etymological sense, like the word butter and the word fly are somehow combined together. Like it's a flying stick of butter or something else. This is just ridiculous. You, etymology, here's the big revelation. Root meanings, etymology, is not very significant when it comes to understanding how a word is being used in context. It's just not very significant. And so um, what I'm going to say here is uh, he goes to etymology to an unhelpful root. This is all just to get away from the actual meaning of the word. Then he goes to an unrelated word, right? Morphe. That's not really related in any way to hamartia, but he goes to morphe. And then he takes the ha at the beginning of martia, hamartia and the morphe, which he's traveled to through some extremely interesting frogger game. And then he puts them together and says, it really means without form. And then he gives you his view of what homartia is really about. So that, that's kind of like what he's doing. This is called the etymological fallacy. And this is exactly what um, what we get when people don't know Greek very well. Um, and I've done, I did it too when I was younger, when I first was given Strong's Bible Concordance. There's nothing wrong with Strong's. What's wrong is that it implies that you're going to find secret meanings by looking up roots of words. That's the, the danger with Strong's. What you want is a lexicon. You know, you, you want a Brown Driver Briggs or something like that. You, you want something that's going to let you um, look at a long explanation of the usage of the word in different contexts. That's what you're more interested in. Now, this is what Wesley Huff, I contacted my buddy, Wes Huff. Wes is a Christian godly man, and he's like a Greek nerd and, uh, you know, PhD stuff and all that, right? So this is what Wes has to say about hamartia as as it's being used by um, by this gentleman, Francois Dutoy. And 
here's, and then I'm going to tell you after this, after West, I'll tell you how to handle it when your pastor says the root of this word means, the root of that word means, what are you supposed to do with that? That's it. It comes from uh, hamartano, which means to do something wrong that, or to make a really bad mistake. For a moment there. Here we go. Hamartia means sin. That's it. It comes from uh, hamartano, which means to do something wrong or to make a really bad mistake. Now, meros means a portion or a share. Therefore, if we're going to break apart the word and try to uh, implicate a meaning, A is the negative particle, and the base meros simply means to not share in the portion or to miss the point. But that's it. The mirrors, the mirror Bible's note trying to connect uh, meros with morphe is simply incorrect. Metamorpho in 2 Corinthians, uh, in that particular passage, is a compound word meaning uh, or coming from meta, meaning change after being with, and morpho, which means form or shape. Metamorphe is not the opposite of hamartia. Uh, dikaisune, righteousness or justice, I think would actually be the opposite of hamartia, of sin. All right. Thanks to Wes. And by the way, I'm going to have another clip from Wes a little bit later. And I also have a link to, a, to a, uh, an article that Wes wrote on um, Bible translations, understanding Bible translations and kind of the spectrum of like word for word versus like paraphrase. Um, that's a clumsy way to put it, but it should identify with people should get what I mean. At any rate, I have a link in the video description where Wes has an article on that. And I think it's very helpful. So let's look at some more examples. But before that, I'll say, what do you do when your pastor is doing this etymological fallacy thing? Um, well, most likely it's probably not a big deal, but very often people make more of the Greek than they probably can. And so one simple example is I used to hear years ago, I don't hear it anymore, but I used to hear years ago that dunamis meant dynamite power, that it meant dynamite. And, um, and so when the Bible says that power will come upon you and you'll be filled with a spirit, right? That that's the word dunamis in the Greek. So this means dynamite power will come upon you. But it didn't like occur to any of these pastors who repeated this over and over again, that dynamite didn't exist in the first century. There's like literally no way that when it said dunamis, it meant anything related to dynamite or explosive power or something like that. So when I looked up dunamis, as it's used in different contexts in the Bible or in other sources, you find out that it just means ability. It just means ability. It doesn't have a special secret meaning where you go to the Greek and you get this, this flower blooms and then the, the, the birds come out and sing and now you know what it really means. Like it just means ability or power as in ability. You have the capacity to do something, you're able. That's all it means. And so um, when you hear this stuff, um, it, it may be indicative of someone who's had a bit of Greek education, but maybe not a lot. And just know that you, word usage in context is more important than etymology or the root meaning of words. Not that the root meaning never matters, because it does sometimes matter. Okay, sometimes it very much matters, but words change meanings over time. We'll talk more about that in a bit. John 1.18, let's look at another passage. Um, in John 1.18, we have, oh, let me go to the, uh, go to the text here. Uh, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side has, let, has made him known. Uh, I, I was actually just talking about this last Friday, this verse with, with the, the Jehovah's Witness translation. At any rate, this is about Jesus, right? Like that much is obvious to you, right? This is all about Jesus, right? Jesus is the only God who's at the Father's side who's made him known. This is about the deity of Christ, the person of Christ, all that. Well, 
his version of John 1, 18, he wants to make it about you. Look at this. Until this moment, God remained invisible. Now the authentic incarnate begotten son, the blueprint of our design. Jesus is the blueprint of my design. So when I have to discover my blueprint, what am I discovering about me? Yeah, I'm, I'm basically Jesus. So the, the blueprint of our design, who represents the innermost being of God. So I'm, I represent the innermost being of God now. The son who is in the bosom of the father brings him into full view. He's the, the official authority qualified to announce God. He's our guide who ac accurately declares and interprets the invisible God within us. There's nothing here. I mean, he, he's his notes. He's like, well, in the Greek, it says, it's just nonsense. It's just total butchering of scripture. The guy must just think he's, he's so spirit led that he can discover things that nobody ever knew and then translate in, in ways that have no connection to the original language. Um, craziness. So yeah, there, there's more, <laughs> there's more. So the, the, the way he deals with sin, um, all this kind of stuff, it's all filtered around this idea that you're basically Jesus now, guys. You're, you're effectively Jesus. Like you, you, you know, Jesus is not like you were the one walking around in the first century, but you're the same. Jesus is revealing who you really are. Look at the statement of faith from the Mirror Bible uh, website, mirrorword.net. Okay, this is his statement of faith. Most statements of faith are a little more involved in this. He says, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 5, that there's only one faith. Jesus encourages his followers in Mark 11 to embrace the faith of God. Some translations say have faith in God. There's a huge difference, right? You're supposed to embrace God's faith. You're supposed to believe what God believes. That's his thing. Not having faith in God, which is a traditional biblical Christian view. You're supposed to believe what God believes. That's a whole different kind of weird mystical thing. He, he explains there. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, we read that Jesus is the, is the author and finisher of, our, of faith, Faith finds its most complete meaning and relevance in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is God, is God's statement of faith. Jesus is what God believes about you. Jesus is what God believes about you. This is nothing less than the worship of mankind, the deification of mankind. This is Satan in the garden. You will be as God, eat of the fruit. Here, the, the fruit is to, is to deny sin and to claim for yourself the nature of what John one eighteen says, the only God, right? But that's you. You're all that. Everybody's the only God. Okay. Wow. Philippians 2 is another passage I was interested to find out about because um, Philippians 2 is a just constantly misused text of scripture for groups like this. Uh, anybody who wants to sort of go the route of trying to deify mankind, they always butcher Philippians 2 verses four through six. So let me look at it with you here in a actual translation. Um, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was, and, and then notice this, were to have an attitude Jesus had, but then it talks about his identity. Jesus is not his attitude, his identity. He was in the form of God. And then his attitude he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And then he humbles himself to the cross. So he suffers and dies. So Jesus is our example because he's greater than us, but he chose to be to behave lower than us, like humble. And we're to follow the example of his humility. Okay, that's like a right understanding of the passage. But his version says, reverses this, right? It makes it about your identity. To discover your own completeness in Christ, 
frees you to turn your attention away from yourself to others. The way Jesus saw himself is the only valid way to see yourself. You're supposed to see yourself the way Jesus saw himself. This is not biblical. This is absolute heresy. If you love Jesus, you hate the mirror translation. If you love Jesus, you hate the phrase, the way Jesus saw himself is the only valid way to see yourself. Verse 6, his being God's equal in form and likeness was official. His sonship did not steal the limelight from his father, neither did his humanity distract from the deity of God. So I'm to see myself as being equal in form and likeness to God officially. I'm to see myself as not stealing the limelight from the father when I declare that I have the deity of God. Francois is a cult leader. The people who love the kindness in his voice and the tears in his eyes and the passion of his preaching are believing life and soul destroying lies. And he's made his own Bible translation to support it. Now let's talk about I amness. I amness is a term invented by the author of the mirror translation. And by the way, the mirror translation doesn't translate most of the Bible. It's only got a few of the um, texts, a few of the books, and he's never going to translate all of the Bible. And the reason for that is because, well, can you imagine how hard it would be to make the whole Bible agree with his bad theology? Like that would just be a lot of work. Um, but he doesn't need it. I mean, he doesn't need it. He just needs a few, like John, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Revelation. You know, he just has the, the texts he wants. Revelation 1.8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The mirror translation says this. The God who is Lord over all things says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. My I amness defines time. I'm present, past, and future. And so now we have a new concept, I am-ness, right? We know that God is I am. God's the I am. But now we want to make I am into a quality, I am-ness, because Francois wants to transfer this quality from God to you because he's deifying mankind. So Luke 4.18 um, is one of the places where he starts to do this. I'm going to read this. Luke 4.18, this is where Jesus is speaking and he says, The Spirit of the Lord's upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery, recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. His version, Luke 4.18, He opened the scroll and rolled it out in order to find the specific place where the following was written. Okay, none of that's actually in verse 18, but that's all added. The spirit of the Lord's upon me because he's anointed me to announce glad tidings to starving people. He has commissioned me to announce the freedom of forgiveness. And then here's the part that I want you to get. The word forgiveness is a problem with Francois' theology. So he redefines it. And in brackets after forgiveness, for those that are just listening on podcast, in brackets after forgiveness, he puts the phrase, their true I amness. So he interprets forgiveness to mean their true I amness. Right? I don't need to be forgiven. I need to discover my true, I, my God qualities. Oh man, I do not want to stand before God as Francois. To those held captive at the spear point by their guilt and shame, also the blind may now look up and be restored in their sight. I am anointed to send out those who are bruised and traumatized into the freedom of their redeemed innocence. And again, you don't need to be, re you don't need to be redeemed, right? Your innocence has to be redeemed. It's just a taking of biblical terms and distorting them with new meanings. 
Now, he goes on to explain, and I won't go into all the specifics, but uh, Francois goes on to try to defend this using Greek. And I'm just going to, to save time, I'm just going to share with you uh, my friend Wes, Wesley Huff's response to Francois' butchering of the term forgive in the Greek. Here it is. Now, with the Luke 4.18 passage, what we see at Luke 4.18 is an allusion and quotation of Isaiah 58.6 from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And once again, we're digging up accurate meanings of how a word comes into existence, i.e. the etymology, but then deriving some sort of secret meaning from there that somehow explains more than the text itself itself seems to be uh, meaning to explain. Yes, aphasis comes from ephemi, a compound word from ap, which means away from, and hemi, uh, an intensive form of imi. But this starts to become nonsensical, and we would never give into this linguistic Gnosticism if people did it with English. Think about the fact that there are all sorts of words in Greek that had original meanings that completely changed their application and meaning by the time we get to the New Testament period. This is true in English as well. There are specific words that had a different meaning uh, than they do now. Awful used to mean full of awe and was used in the way that we use the word awesome. Its meaning literally flipped in the last 200 years. And if we were to draw out some sort of etymological significance to uh, derive secret meaning for something written now, using a word like awful, we'd be completely wrong. Similarly, the the English word nice comes from the Latin uh, nescius, which means ignorant. It was an insult in the 14th and 15th century. Nice guy was an insult, but has completely flipped its meaning. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going on with all of the Greek words that the Mirror Bible is talking about in its explanatory notes. All I'm saying is that by word analysis and etymology alone, we can often get led astray. What the Mirror Bible does borders on what I'm going to call linguistic Gnosticism, where secret meanings that every translator of modern Bibles seem to miss, but that the translator of this version has revealed, that nobody thought to simply look up the roots or the stems of words or are somehow covering all these theologically significant meanings up. That's silly. The question we should be asking is, how are these words used in the sentence? And how do they make sense contextually with what the author is trying to say within the broader framework of the text itself? All right. So you may have heard my doorbell ring <laughs> in the middle of that. Um, yeah, that's the idea. Look, this is this is the, the etymological fallacy. Now, many people are using etymology or root meanings of words to just reinforce biblical truths. And so it's like an error that has very little consequence. Okay, that's probably what's happening most of the time with pastors and churches. They're just going a little too far with the Greek. It's, usually it's relatively harmless. Not here. No, no. He changes forgiveness to I amness. And why? Let me show you what else he does with I amness. Here's the thing. John 17, 7. I got two more verses for you. John 17, 7, where it says in a reasonable translation, like the ESV, um, now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. That's a very short verse, right? 
very simple. Everything that God gave him is from God. What's the point of this? It's just that in John 17, Jesus is saying, um, I'm being vindicated that the miracles I did and the teachings I brought were ultimately from God. That, that's it. That's the whole thing there, right? In John 17, 7, the mirror translation, now they too have come to know that everything you've given me originate in their own I amness in you. I think he meant originated. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, it's not about Jesus anymore. This is now a teaching that you have something called I amness and that that I amness is something you possess in God. And that I amness is the thing that fuels what Jesus does. It's what provides Jesus with, with whatever he's doing in this world. This is um, the deification of mankind. I've realized when friend, I'm going to say it again, when Francois cries because he's so choked up about how glorious God is, that he's talking about himself. He's choked up about himself. He's worshiping himself. First John 2.29. Let's look at one last verse. It says here, if you come to know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, right? Because not everybody's born of God. So that's first John, what he's talking about. Those who are living out this Christian life, you know, you aren't saved by practicing righteousness, but if you're saved, then you live it out in your life. You still struggle with sin. You still deal with issues, but there's a difference between saved and unsaved. Um, well, here's that same verse in the near, the mirror Bible to perceive God's righteousness as defining his I amness concludes that everyone born of him inherently partakes of the same pattern and poetry that his righteousness inspires. Righteousness is our true genesis. Look, you're God. Like just, just to say it a little more simply is like, you're God. You're the same as God. This is a type of, um, uh, new age self-realization, you know, kind of like we're all part of the one pantheism type thing. Um, it's just, absolute rank, rank heresy. And again, what kind of horrible evil villain is behind this? Here's something I really want to remind you of. Knowledge this of his man. beingness and to know that we are in him who is true. The safest place to find yourself located in him who is true. There is it. no hidden agenda there. He's the father of lights. But he's excited about himself. There is no shadow due to change. God is not in the process of trying to, you know, work through the latest news media and try and re-align um, his thoughts towards the human race. But his rest is inexhaustible. He has entered into a place of Sabbath encounter. In their being as we are embraced. So that we may know that as Jesus is in the Father, so we are in him and he in us. There is no difference. This is what he redeemed. There is no difference. Now you know what he meant. There's no difference between you and Jesus. He actually describes the Trinity as four circles. The Father, then inside that circle is the Son. Inside that circle is you and me. Inside that circle is the Holy Spirit. That's how he defines the Trinity. So, yeah, there's more. There's all kinds of other stuff I could share. Um, the devil's kind of a religious construct construct in the, in the mind of man. He doesn't really like to talk about that much. It's hard to get around the texts of scripture that say that stuff is true. But um, hell is just a pathway to heaven. He has a whole section in his study Bible about hell is just a pathway to heaven. That's what hell is. Uh, Jesus, he didn't die to save us except from our mindset to change our minds about things. In Luke 15, he likes to say that the lost coin never lost its value. 
which is not the point of the parable, but it's really good for his false teachings. Jesus is what God believes about you. That's the phrase that he likes to have there. And he is endorsed. This is going to, this is going to bother some of you guys and it should. He's endorsed by a few people. Bob Mumford, who is someone who we should all ignore, who's been involved in various scandals. He's also endorsed by a guy named John Crowder. Now, I am not one to follow all these weird things we see online, like weird Christian, you know, pastor being a crazy man. Like, I'm not really one to click on those videos. But John Crowder did float around in some somewhat viral content because he was a guy in the, in the States, in the U.S., Francois is in South Africa, by the way, and, and he does have a following there. Um, but he's also speaking at different events and stuff. So in the in the U.S., though, he has a following with John Crowder. John Crowder is the guy who is famous for toking the Holy Ghost, where he takes and puts his fingers together as though he has a joint. There's nothing in his hand, as though he has a joint, and he smokes in the Holy Spirit, pretends it's the Holy Spirit, and then he acts stoned. And he leads whole crowds of people to do the same thing. They do it with, with drinking. They do it with everything. They drink in God. They just, he, at one point, slapping his hand and injecting the Holy Spirit into his veins, miming through it. And and this guy endorses the mirror translation. And that endorsement is put on the front page of the mirror, uh, the mirror.net, I think, or whatever the website was. I showed it to you earlier, his mirror translation website, John Crowder. And there's one other endorser I want to tell you about. There's a guy named William Paul Young. William Paul Young has endorsed the mere translation. William Paul Young is the author of The Shack. He, in The Shack, he embedded in his storytelling some good theology, some really heartwarming, really encouraging, really healing stories, and some absolute terrible bad theology. It was all right in there mixed in The Shack. Well, later he came out as like a universalist and all this stuff. And I believe he denied hell, if I remember right. At any rate, William Paul Young has endorsed this mirror translation. Um, look, if you endorse this translation, you're a heretic. Like you're endorsing an anti-gospel translation. Like it's not just, look, I'd rather you read the Passion every day for a year and think that it's God's word correctly translated than read the mirror Bible. Absolutely. Because the problems in the Passion Translation, which there are many, and they're gonna and they're gonna potentially cause problems for you in your own life, they're not gonna cause the kind of soul destroying, uh, wrecking of the gospel that the mere translation causes. Wow. So bottom line, lies taste good. Um, lies taste good. Yum 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 yum. You know, poison. You put it with good food, and and that's the idea is to make all his heresies sound as heartwarming and, and loving and great and great and kind. And if you met Francois in person, he'd probably give you a big hug and be super gracious and super kind. That's the that's the reality of life. Satan's best operatives are the ones that are themselves deceived sincerely. But don't be paranoid. There's tons of great translations out there. I just wanted to cover this mere translation because it, like no one's talking about it, and um, it it's part of a general flow of things there's a, just a whole group of things in in different whether it's progressive christianity or some of the hyper charismatic stuff the mirror bible they're all pushing the same stuff let's devalue forgiveness let's talk about universal salvation let's talk about how we're going to sort of alter our understanding of scripture whether we're retranslating it or coming up with a new cruciform hermeneutic on how we're going to interpret the bible where it's all connected in my head and i think it's something that we should be aware of 
Um, again, I put Wesley Huff's links down below for his article if you're interested in following up on Bible translations. If this has bothered you about translations in general, it shouldn't, okay? We have lots of good translations. And I want to have a quick announcement, kind of something kind of important for those who are interested in doing online ministry. I am starting, I've already started it, a YouTube channel, a new YouTube channel um, called uh, YouTube Tactics with Mike Winger. And this YouTube channel is going to be me just occasionally because all my time is on this channel okay studying and preaching and teaching is is on this channel but occasionally i'll just throw up a video i don't expect this channel to do super well but i expect if you watch this channel and you want to do well on youtube that it will help you do well so if you guys could take a look at my channel i it, i think i've already put a link for it in the video description i certainly meant to <laughs> and the and the first video just went live a few minutes ago the very first video for the channel. I'm the only subscriber to that channel right now. And the goal of that channel is to just teach you tips and tactics for how to use YouTube well. We're going to talk about titles, thumbs, target audience. We're going to talk about monetization, uh, moral issues, and dilemmas you face as a Christian. The channel's not about growing YouTube channels in general. It's about growing Christian YouTube channels, overtly, openly Christian YouTube channels and tactics that will help those people grow. My whole agenda there is I just want to see a lot more Christian YouTube channels. And I think for the first time I look around and I see hope in the eyes of a lot of people that this can really be done because people like me or David Wood or others have, have successfully done it. They're like, man, these guys have like, you know, successful Christian YouTube channels You know, inspiring philosophy has a successful Christian YouTube channel. Like these, these things are really Alan Parr, great successful YouTube channel. These, this can be done. Other people can reduplicate this. And all you have to have is, is some skill, um, knowledge of what your target audience is, what your goal is, what you're trying to promote, what you want to accomplish, and then figure out how YouTube works. Because it doesn't work the way that you probably think it works. <laughs> so so we need some help there. And um, again, I've, I'll put the link should be in the video description. Go watch the video if you're interested or if you know someone who's like a Christian who's interested in doing YouTube stuff, a church that's interested in doing it, send them that channel so they can be part of that for their own benefit. That'll be it. Thank you all so much for joining. Wednesday, I have a very important interview with Neil Shenvey on the topic of critical race theory. That's coming up in two days. Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific time is when it goes live. And then um, Friday, it's going to be the normal Q&A. After that, this next, for the rest of the year, some of my schedule will be spotty. Fridays will be pretty reliable every Friday. Mondays might be a little spotty. If you pop on and I'm not doing a Monday live stream, that's not anything weird. It's just kind of a spotty schedule for the rest of the year. All right. God bless you. Thanks for joining. Don't read the mirror translation. It's garbage.